Let's pray. God, I don't know where everybody comes from, but I know that we are here and you are here and we are so grateful for that. God, we're grateful for this space where we can gather to be with each other and to be with you. God, I don't know what we have to give, but we give it to you, whatever it is, everything. Because we love you so much and we know how much you have given us. God, we are grateful for these words that we're going to read. Words that tell of the early church, the first people who spoke your good news, whose lives you changed, and who couldn't help but change the world. God, may they be an inspiration to us every day. God, during this time, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, God, I ask that they're acceptable to you. Because you are our rock and you are our redeemer. And we love you so much. It's in the name of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. All right. We are, this is like way higher than I'm used to, actually. <laughs> okay. We are in the uh, book of Acts, as Andrew said. That is the um, book that we've been in for a little while. And as he also said, um, it's the story of the early church. It's the story of what the disciples and the apostles of Jesus did after he was resurrected and ascended into heaven. Really, it's the second part of the story that began in the Gospel of Luke. The author of the Gospel of Luke and the author of the book of Acts are the same. And it's really one story because ultimately it's the story of God's mission in this world. And it starts um, way back, actually. The author of Luke believes that it started with the Israelites and that God was there actively working and God made promises. And then with the coming of Christ, a lot of those promises Really, all of those promises that he made to the Israelites, that God made to the Israelites, were fulfilled. And so then when Jesus left, it was up to the church, the early church, to carry on that mission. And so even, in, even though in this actual book of Acts, Jesus is only in the first chapter before he ascends into heaven, the main character of this book is Jesus. And we see and read constantly how the apostles and the, um, the, the missionaries, how everything they did was in Christ's name. And that name had power and it gave them the ability to really truly tell of the good news. And the good news was that God loves his people, that God made promises to his people, and that those promises were fulfilled in this person named Jesus Christ who died on the cross and then rose from, for our sake and all of our sins would be forgiven, and we could have eternal relationship with God. That is the good news that the apostles at the early church believed, and they were trying to spread. So the story is really interesting, and if you haven't read it, and you're kind of just starting in, it's okay. I'll try to catch you up really quickly, but take some time maybe and go back through and read some of the stories of the early church, because there's a lot of drama. There's a lot of drama that goes on, and let me just tell you that has not changed. There's so much drama still in the church. But the cool thing is that you read about it and you realize you're not alone. Okay, so the idea is, you know, they're starting, there's these people, and they follow Christ, and then like Andrew said, Christ goes up to heaven, and they're like, all right, what the heck do we do now? But they're given the Holy Spirit, and that empowers them to go and to tell and to preach and to spread the good news. And people start coming by the thousands and being part of this new movement. Now, you couldn't be a believer in Christ, and not be part of the movement. That didn't make sense to them. If you believed in Christ, if you had that relationship with God through Christ, you were a part of the community. 
And so all of a sudden you have these people joining in this community and trying to figure out how do we live together? How do we share resources? How do we care for each other? How do we eat together? And so there's started to be some tensions that built. Tension within the church, but also tension from without. Because really, really the first Christians were Jews who believed in everything God had done for the Israelites and in everything God had promised the Israelites But they believed that all those promises, like I said, had been fulfilled in Christ. And so Christ was the Messiah, the Savior, that the Jews had been waiting for for thousands and thousands of years. And so they were Jews that believed that God's promises had been fulfilled. But the other Jews who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah were like, what the heck are these people talking about? They are bastardizing our religion. We have got to get them out of here. And so they started persecuting the Christians really at a fervor for the Jewish faith. Does that make sense? So it wasn't just that they were like trying to pick a fight with someone. It was literally that they thought the Christians were threatening what the very essence of what Judaism and the Jewish faith was about. And so that was a huge tension that happened. And so we started having first martyrs, like Andrew said. People are dying and people are getting beaten all the time. and They're getting arrested and then crazy things are happening. That's the tension from the outside. The tension from the inside is that more people, other than just the Jews, started hearing this message, and they started wanting to be involved. So now you have Jews who, if you remember, have very strict regulations about how they live, diet, clothing, a lot of kind of uh, schedule, a lot of strict regulations, and you have these people, these non-Jews, these Gentiles, specifically Greek and Romans, who are listening to the message and also want to be a part of this community. Now remember, to be a believer in Christ, to hear the good news, and to be baptized, and to be a part of this, meant to be a part of the community. You couldn't just, you know, oh, well, I believe in God, but I don't believe in organized religion. I mean, that didn't make sense at all to them. And so you have these Gentiles and these Jews now trying to be in community together. There's a lot of tension in between that. And so they have these big arguments about it, and like, do the Gentiles need to be circumcised? And they Luckily, they come to the agreement that is not the case. All the men give a sigh of relief. And uh, they were able to, to figure out how to live together in this community. So Paul, there are some great characters that come throughout the story, but the character of Paul is ter- a terrific character. And about halfway through the book of Acts, he takes over, and we follow him for the rest of the story. So that's already happened. We've already met Paul. We already know his deal. And what he does is he travels from Jerusalem, and he goes, and he's a missionary, and he starts churches. He goes to towns, mostly in uh, what's now known as Turkey and then Greece, and he preaches, and he tells about the good news. He goes to the synagogues, and he tells the Jews and the God-fearers, the good people who fear God already, who maybe are not Jews, but who already kind of have an inkling and are connected to God through the Jewish traditions, and so they... He, they, he tells them first, and then some of them believe, and then he tells and he spreads it, and he speaks um, throughout the towns, and, uh, but then other people don't believe, and so the, he's usually driven out of town. And there be, we kind of get into this pattern of Paul's missionary journeys, where he like, comes to town, he goes to the synagogue, he preaches, and he's like, you know, half the people believe and half the people don't, and then he's driven out of town. And so then he goes to the next town, and he goes and he preaches, and he, you know, it's a cycle, you get what I'm saying? So it's over and over and over again. And... Um, That is kind of where we are in the midst of that. Paul is now going, and he has a little buddy with him. He used to have Barnabas, but then they had a big disagreement, and so now he's got this buddy Silas with him, and then they picked up this kid named Timothy, and so they're going from town to town, talking about things, preaching the good news, and we are kind of following what happens when they do that in these different areas. Um, I'm so excited because tonight we're going to get to a really great um, 
a really great story. So um, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, which is in chapter 17, and it is verse, we're going to start at verse 10. And what just happened is they go to Thessalonica, which is a city in Turkey, and they preach, and they teach, and they argue, and they talk about the Messiah, Jesus, and this is who you've been waiting for. And the Jews get real pissed, and they get some thugs from the marketplace, and they go and try to um, beat up Paul, but they can't find him, and so they beat up the host where he was staying. They take the guy that, whose house he was staying at, and they beat him up, and drag him out, and they accuse him of all these things, and Paul and his buddies flee the town. So they flee Thessalon- Thessalonica, and that's where we pick up. In verse 10. So that very night, the night that, you know, the thugs had searched for Paul, the believers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more receptive than those in Thessalonica, for they welcomed the message very eagerly, and they examined the scriptures every day to see whether these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, including not a few Greek women and men of high standing. But when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul to Berea as well, they left Thessalonica, went there to stir up and incite the crowds. And then the believers immediately sent Paul away to the coast. But Silas and Timothy remained behind. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving instructions to have Silas and Timothy join him as soon as possible, they left him. So we see this habit, this pattern again. He goes to a new city, but it's a little bit different this time because he goes to the synagogue, which is his very typical move. He goes to the synagogue because that's where he's going to start. He's going to preach to the Jews, and then he's going to branch out. And um, the word, that phrase there, these Jews were more receptive. Literally, the Greek word there kind of refers to, it means better born. Like they're, they're a little better, like have a higher class than the Jews of Thessalonica. So they they were actually, they actually got the message. You see, so there's this like great, um, you know, there's kind of this link between that this author is making between those kind of of higher class, higher education, you know, higher standing, better born, and connection to the good news, which is really interesting if you think about it, because this author, if you read the book of Luke, same author, and if you read a lot of in the beginning of Acts, there's such a concern with Jesus's mission to the poor and connecting to the outcast and the downtrodden. And so that is the case, clearly. And yet, in these areas, the author is very concerned with also showing that Christianity, this, this belief in Jesus Christ as a Messiah, is not something that just ignorant, like, low-class, dumb people do. This is something that actually quite a few men and women of high standing, especially Greeks, will also listen to and be on board with. So there's this sense of this message, the author is very concerned with presenting that this message is much more universal than we realize, much more broad in scope as far as who is interested. Yes, it's about mission with and and ministry with the poor, but it's also something that really appeals and makes sense to more highly educated people of higher standing. Um, So that's just a little detail that's really um, fascinating when you think about the way that this book was used to kind of encourage the new believers and, and, you know, be told, it was used and told to folks who maybe didn't understand who Jesus was and didn't understand what the church was doing. And so maybe had questions about its legitimacy. And so by reading stuff like this, it's kind of saying, okay, look, we're actually legitimate and you can actually be a part of this. 
Um, and so they welcome, they examine the scriptures. I love that. And um, to see, you know, to try to understand and uh, interpret for themselves. Many of them believed, as always, women are included in, as well as men in these books in Luke and Acts. Women and men of high standing. Um, but then, of course, when the Jews of that other city, those like lower class Jews, hear about this, they rush into Berea and they decide to just incite the crowd and stir them up. So, of course, Paul is then asked to leave. Um, although, interestingly enough, this time Silas and Timothy stay behind. Um, and so you get this sense that there is this network. This community has really grown, and there's this connection that people have and this concern that they have for their spokespeople, for the mission of the church. You know, they will go to these cities, and they'll stay and host homes because, and, because that's who they're connected to. But then those homes also become the center of the meeting places. So literally, they were home house churches. And so the homes become the center of that community of believers in that city. And they take great care of one another and their minister, uh, missionaries. And so they, um, they take him, they take him safely to Athens, and then they leave him there. So let's start and uh, pick up here in chapter, in verse 16. So while Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and he also argued in the marketplaces every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. And some said, well, what does this babbler want to say? And others said, you know, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. And this was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Er- no, that's wrong. Areopagus. There you go. And asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, and so we would like to know what it means. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Well, then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. Though indeed, he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. So since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed and others said, we'll hear you again about this. 
And at that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysus the Ar- Golly, whatever that name is, and a woman named Demaris and others with them, period. So I wanted to read this whole story because I thought it was good for you guys, to, for all of us, to get a sense of like the total arc of this. But now let's break it down and chat about it because this is such an interesting thing and there are so many things going on here. So Athens is probably the most important city in ancient Greece You could maybe argue that it's still one of the most important cities in Greece, but definitely one of the most important cities. Big, lots of, the center of lots of commerce, the center of lots of study, the center um, of lots of information and and development and education and, and all sorts of art and, you know, just all sorts of things, poetry, philosophy, I mean, everything. This was a very much the place where that all converged and happened. Um, and so he goes around the city and he's, of course, deeply distressed because he sees a bunch of idols. And he's like, they don't get it. And so he argues in the synagogue. And he argues with the Jews and he argues with the God-fearers like he does in every other city. He goes to the synagogue first, starts with the Jews and the God-fearers. And then, though, he also goes to the marketplace. And I love that he talks with every day with whoever happens to be there. And you can just kind of picture him being like, all right, who's it going to be today? And I'm just going to talk to you. And hey, you over there. And hey, lady with the robe on. I mean, let me just tell you, you know, um, let me tell you the good news. And he does it in the marketplace. And there's something that's very subtle, that, that message there, that the good news cannot be confined, should be shared in public places and public ways. I think that's something good for all of us to remember. Um, whoever happened to be there. And then also, we have these two then um, philosophy, classes of philosophy, groups of philosophy, whatever it's called. And they're the Epicureans and they're the Stoics. Now, these were two of the three most influential and largest kind of philosophical groups in Athens at that time. The only person missing, the only group missing is the Cynics. And I have no idea why they're missing, but they are. Um, and so we have the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and they debate with him. Now, just to give you a brief philosophy, you know, lesson, just in case, to put it in some context, um, the Epicureans, they were materialists, but they believed not in material, kind of like not the superstitious and not the divine. So they were materialists in that they believed, you know, in the physical and the very, the material, Okay, duh, that's what it means. Um, they believe that pleasure is the greatest good, but they believed in simple pleasures because they thought that truly the way to find the most pleasure in life was to gain knowledge so that you could have, um, you could have kind of a peaceful, pain-free existence um, and tranquility. You could have tra- find tranquility that um, would led, led you to be free from fear and free from pain. So they, they kind of, they believed in, in um, pleasure, but they weren't just all about like gorging themselves and stuffing themselves and having sex all over the place because they thought that that could actually lead to unwanted desires and that would then cause you dissatisfaction and not tranquility and not pain. So they were actually very modest materialists who believed in pleasure, kind of confusing, but they specifically believed in individual pleasure. And so they shunned like the public life and they shunned politics. It's not about the community. It's all about an individual pleasure and how do we find that. And it's through knowledge and philosophical argument and debate and thought that we can find that. Um, So you can see the tension then between that school of thought in 
and what the Christians were talking about. I mean, the fact that you couldn't have a relationship with God without being part of a community because it was about something bigger than yourself. And it, it was about an, an individual decision and an individual realization and individual connection. But ultimately, you lived that out in community. And so it wasn't just this individual pleasure-seeking life. It was about a communal life and how do we together worship and recognize and honor God and how do we live in relationship with God in that way. And so you can see kind of there's some distinct then issues between those two. Now Stoics are another group and they're kind of opposites in some ways of the Epicureans. Like they are kind of opponents of each other. Not opposites but like opponents of each other. Um, They very much, you, you kind of like Stoic Kind of that word is like we would describe someone as very cool and collected and calm and no matter what's happening is very stoic. And that's because they actually believe that mo- emotions were like the root of all like bad things. And emotions were just bad and they were crazy and very destructive. And so you needed reason, cool and calm and like universal reason. They didn't believe in a god or gods. They kind of believed that the universe would, was happening as it was logically, you know, it would play out logically and reasonably and so there was no need to get crazy about stuff you just needed to have enough knowledge so that you could be very calm in the face of anything um and that's why we have that idea of kind of that stoic calm you know that's where it comes from that that description that we would use to maybe describe some people um i did not do justice to either of those philosophies i'm sure and if you were philosophy major we can you can actually talk to my husband because that's what he was um and, uh, but just to give you an idea, like the difference, then you can see like these people come up to him and they're like the big deal philosophers of the day. And there's a lot, they got a lot of followers and a lot of momentum. And they're like totally contrary to the message that the early church is trying to portray. I mean, trying to spread because one doesn't believe in God and one believes in individual pleasure. And, you know, I mean, it's just totally different from this message of Christianity. And so he's arguing with them. And some, some of them say, what does this babbler want to say? And the word babbler, this is so funny, the Greek word is literally seed picker. What is this seed picker doing? What is the seed picker saying? And the idea is it has to do with like a little bird who would like hop around and pick seeds but not actually have a um, systematic, coherent argument. And so they're kind of accusing Paul of just shouting like random things out but not being this like steady, systematic, philosophical person who can argue like logically and reasonably from one point to another. So they're accusing him of just being this random person. And that phrase, what to say, what does he want to say? It's kind of one of those, um, if he really could, like that's kind of what it means. They're like really sneering at him. Like what is this seed picker want to say if he could say anything at all? What would it, you know, what would he want to say? So it's a very kind of looking down on him. Um, and then others said, well, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities because he's talking about Jesus and the resurrection. And this was actually illegal in Athens to talk, to talk about foreign um, religions, especially from the Orient um, at the time. And so there's this sense that, well, he, not only is he like beneath the notice of us noble philosophers, but he could actually be doing something totally illegal. And, but they take him and they bring him to this place, <laughs> which... This is really interesting. It's, it's the hill of Ares, the god of war, who's also known as Mars. And so this is Mars Hill. They take him to Mars Hill, which I don't know if some of you recognize. Is like That's a common name for a church. A lot of churches kind of claim to be Mars Hill. And that's, um, this is where it is. 
<laughs> That's why, I guess. Um, and so they take him to Mar- Mars Hill, and they ask him in an actually very polite way, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You know, it sounds rather strange to us, and so we'd like to know more about what it means. Like, it's this very cordial, like, invitation to dialogue and discussion and debate. And so then you have what I think is great. It's this little, like, sneering phrase about the Athenians themselves that we get from our author here. And it's like, now, all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Like, so superficial. Like, they would just waste all their time. They don't even care what it is. As long as it's new, like, they want to hear it, you know? I mean, it's kind of like sneering at them like that. But it's so interesting because Luke, the author, really does think that God has done something new in Christ. And yet, it's so important to him, to this author, to make the connection between what God is doing new in Christ is actually a fulfillment of the promises that God made of old. So that continuity of God being active and present in the Israelite, in the Jewish faith, in the Israelite tradition, and then continuing into what God was doing through Christ, even though, yes, you could say that's a new thing, but it's really this continuation. And so you can kind of see where the author would be kind of like, yeah, they, if it's new, they're interested, but they, they have no idea, like, really what it means to understand um, what God could, that God could be doing something new in the midst of this old history. Does that make sense? Please nod if you understand. Okay. Then, so then he goes. He stands on Mars Hill and he says to them, okay, I see that you're extremely religious, which in sometimes, and the Greek word could be translated as like superstitious, but you kind of feel like maybe he's trying to be nice at first and start out gentle. I see that you're extremely religious. And I looked carefully around all of the idols that you worship, and I noticed that you had one that was dedicated to an un named God. Now, if Paul was really being sensitive to the way that what we could call the pagans, you know, folks who worshiped lots of, you know, the polytheists, how they worship gods, they, they didn't actually believe that God was in the individual idols. They believed that those were symbol, symbols of God and that, the, you know, that directed one's mind towards the gods. Um, represented the gods. Just like the Jews, for example, would have built the temple and felt like that was God's house, but they didn't really believe that God was only contained in that house. Um, It was just a very holy, sacred place that they believed helped connect them to God. And so there's, that's a little distinction, but it's important to remember. I mean, so as not to just like totally make them seem like idiots. And Paul probably knew that, but he was again, kind of probably being a little snarky. And, um, so he, he claims that they have this altar to an unknown God. We cannot find that altar anywhere in any of the ruins that we have dug through. Um, and what it could mean is that it was an altar to a God for doing something, but they didn't know which God did it. Or it could mean um, that it could have been kind of a God from... Um, you know, kind of a general kind of, we're just grateful for generally what has been happening, but we don't know which God it was. Um, Or it could be a foreign God, or it could have been, so there's a lot of things that it could have been, but we've never been able to find um, an altar with this inscription before. So this is really, really important to understand what he says now. Then he, what he does is he basically says, so what you worship is unknown, I will now proclaim to you and make known. And what you worship is unknown is actually the God the one true God and implication of Jesus Christ. And so this is really an important thing because he's taking something that they already believe, they already worship, 
And he's saying, you just don't know what you're worshiping. So let me make it clear to you. Now, what he's not doing, and he's, he's not, he does not believe that he's bringing God to them. Right? Because they're already worshiping God. They just don't know they're worshiping God, so he's just going to make it clear to them. He's not bringing God to them because God is already with them. God is already with all of us. You see, he says this, you know, God, he created the world and everything in it. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He is not served by humans or live in shrines made by humans, for he gives all these things. And it says right down here, where is it? So they would search for God. When he talks about how, you know, all the, all the nations on the earth come from one ancestor, all the nations of the earth come from one answer. He's talking about then a unity of humanity, really. Because when you believe in different gods, you can believe that, well, they worship that god, and so we're totally different people here. But this idea that we all come from one ancestor, and that ancestor comes from God the creator, one god, one creator, there's kind of this sense of, all right, then we have to understand each other as brothers and sisters in this. And then he kind of goes into the, you know, all the different nations and he proclaimed when they would be so that they would search for him. Though indeed he is not far from each one of us. And that's the point. That's the point of this. This is the way that the Christian missionaries actually would talk about God. It's not that, oh, you poor thing, you have, you've never, you know, God is not here with you. I need to bring God to you. That's not how they would do it. They believed that God was present there already. The people just didn't know that it was God. You get what I'm saying? So that is, that is such an important nuance of the way that Paul preached and the way that Paul believed. Really, all the missionaries believed that the good news needed to spread. They weren't there to bring God to people. They were just there to enlighten people about who God already was for them. Because the people already had this relationship. They were already seeking, groping, searching. They might have already been worshiping, but this unknown God, but they didn't understand who that God was. And so the Christian mission was to put that God, that thing that they were groping for and seeking and yearning for and wanting into the context of the one true God of Jesus Christ. That was the mission of the church to take when it really, when it came to kind of missions to other people of other religions. That was what the church tried to do because the church believed that God was everywhere and created everything and was already close to these people. They just didn't know it. And you notice the language, kind of the universal language that Paul uses. The God who made the world and everything in it, heaven and earth. He didn't need everything. He gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, all nations were made. And they could search and they could find him. And so in him we live and move and have our being. And for we too are his offspring. And then even further down, he commands all people everywhere to repent. There's such this universal language that he uses. Um, so in verse 28, he quotes two, two different things. The first is, he says, in him we live and move and have our being. He's actually, and then the second is, for we too are his offspring. He's actually quoting two Greek philosophers who are talking about Zeus. So he's demonstrating to these philosophers and these people, he's like, I know, 
I'm like hip. I'm with it. I know philosophy. I know what you've written. And he says, so the first one is from a 6th century poet, um, Epimendes, referring to Zeus. And the, the second one is from a 3rd century Stoic philosopher, um, Aratus, referring to Zeus as well. Um, and so he's kind of, you know, I'm with it, but he takes them, doesn't he? And he's like, okay, see, just like your poets would say this about Zeus, what I'm telling you is actually true about God, the one true God. And so, again, he's not bringing God to them. He's just enlightening them as to the character of the one true God. And so he says, for we are God's offspring. Now, kind of sons and daughters of God. I mean, that is often used to kind of describe the believers, the community. But in this case, he literally means everyone. It's, it's not necessarily a religious sense, but much more of kind of this universal, because we're from one ancestor and from one God, we are all God's children. We are all connected in that way. And so we can't think of God in these physical terms. But we have to understand God as more than that. In fact, God has, over, has, has overlooked our times of ignorance. So what is the issue? In, in this speech, in this sermon, the issue isn't that God has overlooked our badness, you know, our, our iniquities. It's that actually God just realizes that we've been really ignorant. All the nations of the earth, they already know God. They're just ignorant that God is there. And God has overlooked those times of ignorance. And yet now, everyone is called to repent. Now is the time that everyone is called to repent. And of course, the Christian implication is not just repent, but believe in Jesus Christ and know that your sins through him are forgiven. So what's interesting is if you start, if you take this whole speech up to verse 30, you know, and now he commands all people to repent, that literally could be a speech given by a Jew. Because everything he says is actually what the Jews believe, that God did create all people and all things, and there was this time of human ignorance, and now, and, and the, even the call to repentance is a Jewish call, but then he, like, drops the kicker. And this is where he mentions Jesus for the very first time at the very end, and he says, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And that is the only time that he mentions Christ in this entire speech. And he doesn't even mention Christ by name, which is so strange because everywhere else in this book, the name of Christ has power and carries weight of its, of its own. But he doesn't mention Christ by name. But what does, he do, what does he mention? He mentions the resurrection, that God promised that God would do this because he resurrected this man from the dead. What, what you'll notice is missing is the cross and the atonement. What he focuses on here is the fact that Jesus, this man who he doesn't name, was resurrected. And that's the promise that God makes to judge the world with righteousness. And that kind of that term with righteousness means injustice, with justice. And not just like human justice, because really there's a lot of injustice that's going on in the world at this time and maybe today as well. It's about divine justice and the fact that everything will be made right in God's eyes. And that day is coming, and the reason we know it's coming is because he raised Jesus from the dead. That is where the power of this message lies that we're reading today, in the resurrection. And that, of course, is what they can't kind of get their heads around. 
And as soon as they hear about the resurrection of the dead, they're like, no way. That's crazy. The dead just don't rise again. That's sick. And some of them, though, are kind of more polite. And they're like, well, you know, that's lovely. Well, just why don't you come back again next week and we can talk this over. But then some actually believe. And so you have like three levels of response here. And you have finally that last level, which is kind of the true level that we should all get to. There's the people who outright reject it. There's the people who, you know, doubt a little bit and kind of hold it at arm's length but are polite about it. And then there's the people who are all in. And they're like, okay, this may be crazy, but we believe. And so we have this man and we have this woman and there are others with them. And we don't ever hear of these two people who are named again. But we have their names here, and they become believers. I love this story because it's so rich. And you can just imagine this confrontation that Paul is having with these very sophisticated philosophers who have taught for a long time and think that they have the right answers. And when we talk about philosophy, we're not just... You know, it's not just some, like, class that they took. I mean, it means a way of life. So Paul is engaging with these people who truly believe that to live a certain way is the right, this is the way to goodness and happiness in your life. And he is coming with this radically different message that says, no, actually, you just don't understand. And really, really, the thing that you, that gives you meaning and power and breath and all things That's God. And really, we're called to repent and have a relationship with that God because of what that God did for us. And I I just, so I love, I love this passage because it's so rich. There's so many nuances. There's so much detail in it. Um, And I think it's so easy for us just to skip right over and think, okay, he had this like random confrontation and he moves on. But there's so, it's such a weighty thing that he's doing and such an important confrontation that he's having and so many important points that he's making. And so I, I just, I love that idea of how he does this. That he reminds folks that, you know, God is with you already. God is with you already. No matter where you are, no matter what you're going through. But the question is, how are you going to respond? I mean, that's kind of what he's asking them at the end. How are you going to respond? Because God has been here all along. You've been worshiping God. You've sought God. You've yearned for God. What is that word? You've groped for God. But he's already there. And so how are you going to respond? Are you going to believe that? Are you going to believe and join and have faith? Or are you going to doubt? Or are you going to be polite but hold it at an arm's length? I mean, that's what he's asking the people he's speaking to, and that is a good question that I think we all have to ask ourselves. So I hope this week you think about that a little bit. You know, if God is already there, always, has been there for you, with you, always, how have you responded, and maybe how do you need to respond? Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for the fact that you are always with us. God, so many of us, it's hard to believe that sometimes for us. So help us to respond. Help us to have faith that you are there. Help us to respond that you are, to the fact that you are with us. God, help us to speak boldly. Help us to not be afraid of of folks who would argue, but to engage and to point 
you out and the fact that you're present in all things and all ways. God, we pray for each of us and, and our loved ones and our friends and, and our weeks. God, we pray for those who are part of this group but who couldn't be here tonight. God, we're grateful for your love because it helps us to love others. And it reminds us, it reminds us of how much we truly owe you. It's in your son's name that we pray and by the power of your Holy Spirit.